Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. I'm Catherine Matheson and I'm Director of the RI. Now you might know the Royal Institution from our Christmas lectures, a series of lectures which have aired on TV every Christmas since 1966 and were founded way back in 1825 by Michael Faraday himself. Since then, we've had the likes of David Attenborough, Carl Sagan and Hannah Fry present the lectures. And this year, our Christmas lecturer is the brilliant Professor Dame Sue Black. Sue's a forensic anthropologist with an incredible career using her expertise to help solve real-life cases and identify both victims and criminals. Today, Sue joins me to talk about what we can expect to learn from this year's Christmas lectures. Welcome to the RI, Sue. Thank you very much. That's kind of you. And I remember you gave a talk, now a keynote discourse here in 2019. Oh, it feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? <laughs> when COVID came in the middle, everything just seems to have been so displaced. It I does. thought it was longer than that. Isn't that terrible? Only 2019. And how does it feel to be back then? Oh, it's lovely. It, it was um, one of those lectures where there is um, the sort of ritual around it of what you have to say or not say and what you have to do. And that felt really quite unusual. But once you're in that space it is such an iconic historical space that you really feel privileged and so to be asked back twice is is really wonderful thank you oh well you're very welcome we're excited to be hosting you actually this year do you do you have memories of the christmas lectures oh good heavens yes so it was it was mandatory in in our family although my family weren't scientists at all but it was my my father loved programs that he could understand the science. And so he loved things like Tomorrow's World, for example, and the Christmas lectures, because it was an understandable level of science, because my father didn't do science since he was in school. And I think that's how it works so well, is that many of us as as adults, you know, have that level of understanding that stops when we last did any real science education. And so some of us, it's at that stage, Family for us, it was an absolute must. And for me, it was, I think it was probably about 1975 or 76, that shows my age, (laughs) um, when it was Heinz Wolf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there was this character on the television who was so eccentric, so thoroughly, you know, enthusiastic about everything, totally different to any teacher that you ever had in school, frankly, with this wild sticky out hair and telling you things that you just couldn't read anywhere else, you know, about brain signals and about cells in your blood. And it was just addictive in many ways. His enthusiasm was addictive. And for me, that was the early starts of this is what communicating science should look like and should sound like. But it was a slightly eccentric. And I think probably in the 1970s, we had a few slightly eccentric scientists that probably broke the mould a little bit. I think the, the pendulum came back a little bit later and we became a lot more serious about it. But I think they broke the mould. And as that result of that, they stuck in your mind. They really did. did. Yeah. Yeah. Wolf is such a, so charismatic. Oh. And I think... One of the things that I remember from that era was about how much people um, 
enjoyed doing the communication. You know, the performance of sci- of really good science communication, I think, is really powerful to see a scientist not only talking about their work, but talking about it with such passion and in a very individual way. I think that's very powerful for people watching. I agree with you, but I've also very recently read one of the small booklets that is a booklet from the Royal Institution that is about um, Faraday, for example, saying this is what makes a good lecture. This is how you communicate with the public. And you think, yes, 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 and absolutely yes. He had it nailed down. And we think science communication is something very modern. It isn't. Those who are good communicators have always been good communicators. And I think that is true. I think it's pivotal for the way those scientists do science as well. That sense of, I mean, the RI's very fortunate to have had people like Michael Faraday working on the premises, so working in the basement and then rushing upstairs to sort of share the findings with the public, I think is um, it's a contagious kind of excitement. And it and it contributes, I think, seeing, uh, talking about it in real time, you get the, and getting the public view immediately, it shapes how you think it does. about that. Science. But I also think it's an authentic excitement because, you know, we, we can always pick out on television those who are putting on the excitement. It sounds so false. But when you get a real communicator who's passionate about what they do, that authenticity, is it really shines through. And it's what hits you in the soul that says, this is real, this isn't put on at all. And that's addictive, hugely addictive. That's right. And I think that's one of the things that we feel is very important at the RI. One of the things that is fairly distinctive about our approach is that we allow we sort of enable people to meet the real scientist. Yeah. And some of them are utterly flamboyant and some of them are less flamboyant and that they are the people they already are with all of their kind of, you know, their family backgrounds or the things that have made them who they are. And we show all of that. We don't just show a kind of sort of translated or kind of cleaned up version. And we're all on a range somewhere. Exactly. You know, those that are, that are really quite introverted but so detail-oriented in their science, right the way through to the flamboyant players and everything in between. It shows that what you can't do is draw a typical scientist because there isn't such a thing as a typical scientist. We run the full gamut from the sublime to the utterly ridiculous. (laughs) Absolutely. So in this year's Christmas lectures, Mm. you're going to be letting us in on the secrets of forensic science. Can you give us a little taste of what we might expect? But you see, I've been so well schooled, I'm supposed to say no. Because I'm (laughs) not supposed to let... You're not, but you can share it with us. Oh, okay, if you say so. I think everybody would be totally shocked if I was to appear on television and there weren't going to be some bones somewhere. So I think that's almost a given. Anybody could predict that. And so in the three lectures, what we will do is we will take a look at everything from the crime scene to the courtroom because it is a full process. So we'll look at a situation where we have a body. What can we tell from that body? We'll look at a crime scene. What can we tell from that crime scene? And then when it gets into court... Does the science really withstand the interrogation of the courtroom? And how important is the courtroom in dictating how the science changes or how it moves forward in terms of its research? Because the the, the courtroom is often forgotten about and it's the real testing ground for forensic science. And why do you think it's so crucial for young people, children and their families to learn more about forensic science? For me, the forensic bit isn't important. There are two words in there, and the important word is the science. And almost anybody can be a forensic scientist 
if as a scientist they're giving evidence in the courtroom. That's all that makes you forensic. We tend to think, oh, forensic science, that must be DNA and fingerprints. No, it isn't. It's any form of science that goes into the courtroom. And the courtroom is a really interesting place for science to be because it doesn't allow you to speak in jargon. It doesn't allow you to, to sound terribly clever and use words that nobody else understands because the most important people in the courtroom are the jury and the jury are the members of the public. And our job as an expert witness is to make the evidence understandable for them so they can make their decision. So for forensic science, you have to distill science right the way down, not dumbing it down by any means, but putting it into a language that is understandable by the public who may not have studied science since they were in school, which might have been 40 years ago. And so that, that communication of the simplicity of science without getting bogged down in the details that just the scientists need to know is the honest truth is what I think makes it compelling. I agree. And I think that's one of the things that's compelling about this genre of, um, you know, true crime or, or crime on the TV or on radio programmes or whatever. It is sort of enticing to us because the science is applied to a real situation, to a real mystery or something that's not fully understood. And we can use science as a tool to kind of um, find out what's really going on. I think there's, there's lots of things in what you've just said. And the thing you can't refute is that everybody loves a murder mystery, don't oh, they? Definitely. Everybody loves a murder. If they didn't, we wouldn't have Morse and we wouldn't have Taggart and we wouldn't have Lewis and we wouldn't have Silent Witness and we wouldn't have all the plethora of novels that are out there. So you have to ask, why is it that that sort of genre is so appealing? And I think, first of all, it's because it's relatable to the real world. So we understand when things go wrong and an accident happens or something goes wrong as a bit of passion and, and something untoward happens. We can relate it to our everyday lives. All of us love to try and be the ones that solve a mystery. We, we like that idea of a puzzle in front of us because we're curious primates. You know, we want to be able to solve those puzzles. And this is a slightly dark world. So we kind of like the fact that we're a little bit scared by it. But we can look at it behind our fingers because we know we're safe. We're reading about it or we're watching it. It's not happening to us. It's happening to somebody else and we're slightly removed from it. So it gives us everything we want in terms of the curiosity, the investigation, the thrill of it, the resolution of the crime that goes, oh, I knew it was him. I was better than anybody else at doing it. And the science is understandable because it has to be because it's in the courtroom. It's not above everybody's head. I can remember in one of my previous posts and we had life scientists and I would look at the titles of their lectures and I'd think, I don't even understand the words, let alone when you string them together, what they mean, because it's such an esoteric part of science that that group of individuals will understand, whereas what we do Everybody has to be able to understand it because you may be the, the jury member in the courtroom. And I think it's refreshing for people to hear that scientists have that reaction sometimes to other scientists' work, that it seems impenetrable or abstract or just a bit peculiar. And as you say, the kind of fields in which you work, sometimes literally, are you have one foot in everyday life. And you said, I mean, it's sometimes a bit dark, isn't it? Sometimes yeah. there's a gruesome element or something that's quite hard hitting. This lecture series, of course, is for children and young people. So how are we, how are we 
dealing with that potential tension, do you think? Very appropriately, I have to say. So um, I will give lectures right across the spectrum, you know, from from adults to to children. I've even gone into primary schools, into primary two to talk about bones breaking and such things. The, The whole aspect of human interaction and human involvement is something that you can pitch at an appropriate level. You watch your language, you watch the imagery that you create. You ensure that it isn't something that is going to give somebody nightmares. You put appropriate warnings where they are, but you're always co- you're always, always aware that there may be somebody in the audience who's just lost their grandma or their granddad or whatever, and they're feeling a little bit sensitive. You're not out to shock. You're out to educate, not to entertain. And the language you use can be very, very precisely geared towards conveying a concept without making it something truly, you know, so horrendously memorable that it sticks with somebody forever. But when you're dealing with adults, adults often want it to be a little bit more graphic because they will understand it. You don't need to do that for children. You absolutely don't for them to understand. They watch the news. They know what goes on in the world. Um, They will see it through a slightly different lens. It's our job to use the same lens so that it's age appropriate. Absolutely. Completely. And I know that you're particularly interested in faces and hands as being the parts of people that we see in everyday life. Do you want to say a little bit more about how you got to be interested in hands? So again, I'll be, I'll be very careful about the language that I use because some of the cases that we do are actually very traumatic. But there, there are instances where individuals' hands are captured in photographs or in videos. And the question is, is the person who is the suspect, the police have arrested, is this person the person who's committing the crime on this image? And we were sent a set of images um, back in 2006. And the question from the police was, is the suspect and the offender the same person? And all we had was the back of their hand. So anatomically, I, I know, don't we say it? You know it like the back of your hand. There's a reason you say that. You look at your hands and you know it's yours. Any photograph you've ever seen, there's a hand in it. You can think, oh, that's my hand. How do you know? So I look at my hands and my mother had the most beautifully delicate hands. I unfortunately got my father's hands. (laughs) And so my father had great big spades, shovels of hands. So I have nothing delicate. I have my father's hands. So there is a genetic predisposition towards them. But there's also individualistic things in there that are yours and nobody else's, even if you're an identical twin. So I guarantee the pattern of veins on the back of your right hand will be different to the pattern of veins on the back of your left hand. And everybody's looking at their hands right now. (laughs) Including me. Including you. I guarantee it because they're different and identical twins as they are in anywhere else because they form in your own environment. The same as the, the pattern of skin creases across your knuckles. Different across every finger, different between both hands. And we know anatomically how these things form. So when you layer one on top of the other, what we develop is something that's called a multimodal biometric, which means I've got some features that are formed when you were a baby inside your mum. I've got some features that were formed because you've been exposed to the environment or accidents. And when you layer them one on top of the other, the chances of having everything the same between two sets of images and they're not the same person becomes infinitesimally small. So being able to identify someone from a photograph just off the back of their hand 
was where we led to in, in a lot of our research. I understand. And I think that one of the first uh, anthropologists to look at the patterning on primates' hands was a researcher called John Napier. And he has um, he delivered the Christmas lectures back at the RI himself in 1970. And we've got a book from our collection called Monkeys Without Tales, telling the story of human evolution, written by Napier. Um, and so... I mean, sadly, actually, John Napier's Christmas lecture series are one of our missing lectures. So the original recordings were lost back from the BBC archive, back when nobody thought about future proofing in the same way that we do now. So if anyone listening to this remembers watching... Uh, watching the John Napier Christmas lectures and thinks they might have a recording squirreled away, please do get in touch. And what we year was love. that? That was 1970. 70. So uh, a few a few years ago now. So the, but we've got the book here and also the programme from the lectures. And I wonder what ideas or what memories it sparks for you. Well, I know John Napier's work because when we started to work on hand identification, you go back to the original, I went back to John Napier. And then when I found that he'd done a Christmas lecture, I thought, that's great, let's go and have a look at it. And of course, just as you said, it was the one that's missing. And so, you know, I, I really echo your plea. That's the one that I'd really, really like to see because that comparison, that comparative anatomy across different species it's really important. It allows you to see what in the hand is inherent in the primate and where does it change in other animals. And he was um, a tremendous communicator, somebody who was very precise about his science, but really groundbreaking at the time. And gosh, yes, I'd love to see that picture, that, that, that series. I really would. Yeah. It'd have been great lectures. Me too, me too. And we also have another book from the collection. So this is a little bit older. Just a bit. Isn't it beautiful? This is a book published in 1842, wow. volume two of Anatomical Plates by Quain and Wilson. And the, the drawings are so big that they, the book is so big it doesn't fit on the table I in know. front of us. It's not a pocket edition, is it? <laughs> no. Definitely not. Uh, it's not even a suitcase no, edition, isn't I don't right. think. Um, and how do these beautiful drawings, how do they compare to the modern equivalent in your own No research? different whatsoever. And that's the wonderful thing about the old anatomical textbooks. We, we saw a change in anatomy around the time of Vesalius in the 1500s, where prior to that, we were almost making up what a human anatomy looked like. Vesalius knew that he needed to look at dissections. And in that ability to actually look underneath the human skin, we started to produce these incredibly detailed anatomical pictures. And you can use that picture today. And that's the incredibly, you know, the marvellous thing about it. In some ways, some of our modern books aren't as detailed as some of the older ones. And so I've always gone back to the old. So I remember Quain's Anatomy um, as a student looking through it, thinking, yep, that doesn't look any different. And everybody who studies anatomy at some point or another goes through uh, a copy of Gray's Anatomy. And what's really interesting is when you learn the anatomy, that edition becomes yours. Everyone in front of it or after it is nowhere near as good as the edition that, that you learned from. And you become, I think, as an anatomist, so wedded to particular types of text that it, it's the ingrained nature of the subject that we do. But we went back, when we started looking at vein patterns, superficial vein patterns in the hand and in the forearm, we went back to a lot of the original text to show 
that the ha- the veins in the lower part of the, the into the hand and the forearm are so variable that nobody names them and you don't get a named vein until you go into the elbow because everything beyond that distal to that is so variable there's no point in anybody naming them and that was the principle behind the biometrics of vein identification is that the variability, the further you are away from the heart, the more variable the vein pattern is. And that's what makes it valuable for identification. Well, and I love that idea as well, because I thought anatomists had named everything. Nope. nope. To be honest. They know when to quit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I could name my own veins myself then. Yes, you can. You can call them anything you like. Well, that's, I'll be doing that later. Sue, that sounds fantastic. And of course, human anatomy doesn't doesn't change fundamentally but the thing that does change is the technology that we can use to study it or understand it so technology like um, deep fakes or artificial intelligence for facial recognition how do you think that's going to change things in your field well I think if I go back to when there was a real change in my field then I'll move forward if you if you permit me to when that change comes in my world the biggest change came when Alec Jeffries was sitting in his lab in Leicester, pulling what little hair he has out, and he would say that himself, um, because he couldn't get his medical experiments to work. And he had that eureka moment that said, of course I can't get my experiments to work. Everybody's DNA is different. And that was a real step change. That was a Rubicon we could never cross back again. That changed our world in forensic sense. What was important about the science was that it wasn't a forensic science. It was a medical science that had been invested in quite heavily for research and we could translate it into the forensic world. And that's when forensic science works best, is when you take a science and you import it from somewhere else with all the rigour that it comes with into our world. What's happening at the other end is that we are seeing massive advances in artificial intelligence, in remote sensing, in all sorts of things. And what forensic science does is it sits like, like a little magpie watching what everybody else is doing and steals the shiny things and says, what's happening out of there in AI? Could we use that? What's happening out there in sensing? Could we use it? And as long as the solid science and research is happening, we can use it. And we're starting to do that in our hands field now. So we are training the computers to go through these videos to say, is there a hand in here? And it finds the hand and it abstracts that image. We don't have to see the whole video anymore. Then when you have that hand image, we say to the computer, find the veins for me, find the skin crease patterns for me. And because the computer can then analyze massive data sets, then very quickly we can get to the point of probability that is at a level maybe one day, that's approaching DNA. It's not there at the moment, but that's what artificial intelligence will allow us to do. So forensic science is about saying, watching what everybody else is doing, how can we steal it and transform it into our own world that helps us solve the problems that we've got? AI and remote sensing, they're definitely coming our way and they will be the equivalent, I think, of DNA. But they've got to get into the courtroom and everybody forgets the courtroom. I can't see our legal system being ready any time soon to start interrogating a computer for evidence. So what will happen, I believe, is that we will use the artificial intelligence. The expert has then got to be able to interpret that 
for the courtroom so the expert can be interrogated. So I don't think we've lost the need for the expert anytime soon. But of course, science fiction is wonderful, isn't it? You never know at the end of the day. We may never need any more experts if we have the computers. Well, I think it's possible. But actually, I mean, I remember some of that period when uh, DNA analysis was the shiny thing. So back in the kind of early 2000s, I worked for a couple of years for the government's forensic science service. And in the fairly early days of very widespread DNA testing in the National DNA Database in England and Wales. Um, and and there was a, a fear then, I think, that, uh, that the sort of uh, routine nature of the protocols that you go through would mean that there was no longer any need for experts in the courtroom. And that, of course, turned out to be completely yeah. not true. In a way, you need the expert as much to explain what is happening, to your point about the courtroom being the place where the science that's being discussed or presented needs to be understandable by everybody in the room. And the expert needs to evolve as well. As the science evolves, the expert needs to evolve, but so does the courtroom. So the judges need to understand an element of the science. The legal teams do as well, because if you need to make sure you ask the right question to get the answer that you're looking for in the courtroom. So, so the lawyers do need to have some scientific underpinning as well. But we all need to evolve as the science evolves. That is fascinating. And because things are always changing in this way, what advice would you give uh, perhaps one of the young people who's listening to this or in the audience at the Christmas lectures and is interested in a career in forensic anthropology? So my first thing would be ignore the forensic word. Go and do the science bit, whether it's anthropology, anatomy, chemistry, biology, whatever science it is, go do that first. Get a good grounding in the science. If at the end of that you think, no, I still want to go into this alien world, and it is a truly alien world for a scientist of a courtroom, which is where you're going at the end of the day. If you want to go down that route, then train in the forensic element of it. But you need to be a scientist first. Find which science ignites your passion. Is it physics? Is it chemistry? Is it mathematics? Is it biology? If it's biology, is it anatomy? If it's anatomy, then, you know, maybe it is anthropology. But start with the source, first of all. And I love that idea about starting with which which aspects of science ignite your passion, yeah. because that will be the route to yes, an amazing absolutely. Career. And that's the wonder of science, is that you've got a broad base to choose from. And thinking about the young people who are in the Christmas lectures audience this year, what do you hope will be the effect for them of the lectures? I would like them to go away and think about the science Every time they watch a programme like CSI something or another or Silent something or another, whatever the programmes are they watch, I'd like them to be the critics of the science. I want them to be the ones who challenge. That doesn't sound right. I wouldn't do that. And that for me tells me that I've got an, an active inquiring mind that is questioning. And science is all about questioning, where, where you have something that there is a situation you don't know what the answer to it is then you need to know the questions to ask before you can get to the answers. And I want them to be less believing of what they see on television or perhaps what they read in a novel and really go back to the basics of the science and to be able to challenge it. Imagine they were the advocate in court. How would you find the, the, the holes in the argument for the evidence? Because if you can find the holes in the argument, then that tells you the research needs to be done to fill those holes. 
Absolutely. And I hope that at least some of the young people who uh, are joining us for the Christmas lectures will be the people who do that research. Wouldn't that be fill wonderful? The that would just be marvellous. Then we, you and I, we will have achieved our goal. Absolutely. We? Yeah. And we'll just come back and listen to that. Oh, next oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I've spent my life training teams who are much better at the job than I ever was. And isn't that the way it should be? Sounds like a plan, Sue. Deal. It's been brilliant talking to you. you. Thank you so much for your time. If you want more from Sue right now, you can scroll back in your podcast app of choice to find a recording of the discourse Sue gave at the RI in 2019, where she dives into the fascinating details. And of course, remember to tune in to the three episodes of Christmas Lectures, which will be airing on BBC4 between Christmas and New Year 2022. They'll be up on the BBC iPlayer right after that in the UK. And if you're listening from overseas, you'll be able to watch them on our website later in 2023. Head to rigb.org to make sure you don't miss out.